Welcome to Of Two Minds, a podcast where we get two people who are deeply divided to talk to each other. I'm your host, Sarah Shord. In this show, we're going to take a critical look at tribalism in this country and how it often blocks us from having sane, productive conversations. In the first part of every episode, we'll start by talking with each guest separately about their lives and the events that have shaped the way they think. Then we'll get them together to have a conversation. In that spirit, let me begin by telling you a little about myself. I've had some unusual experiences in my life, like the time in 2011 that I sat down to talk to Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the former president of Iran. This was after I'd spent a year as a political hostage in one of his most notorious prisons. Yeah, that was me. I was one of the American hikers captured along the Iran-Iraq border while taking a trip from my then-home in Syria. When I got out, I publicly challenged President Ahmadinejad to meet with me, and he agreed. He's probably the politician most responsible for stealing a year of my life. And I sat down to talk to him. The conversation was awkward for both of us, but there was something about just looking someone you're supposed to hate in the eyes and being like, yeah, I still kind of hate you, but you really are just a person. That was a few chapters ago in my life, but it was one of the things that sparked the impulse to do this podcast. In a real sense, it highlights one of the central questions I want to ask. Does it matter who we are? Does it matter who I am as the host of this podcast? If I find out Ahmadinejad likes his broccoli steamed or was abandoned by his mother, does that change anything? Some differences matter a lot more than others. But in order to expand our understanding of difference, we have to get outside our bubbles and listen to people that think and live differently from us. That's exactly what we got a chance to do in this episode. My senior editor Jeremy Dalmas and I left the liberal Bay Area and traveled to suburban Ohio and rural Louisiana. In less than a week, we went from catching snowflakes to riding a speedboat through the bayou. We got a chance to talk about climate change with two environmentalists, Tish Odell and Mike Schaff. One of them believes in global warming, and the other one doesn't. The conversation is also about race and class, and how poverty often makes it difficult for us to deal with the problems we have in common. Tish is a passionate and sometimes irreverent lady. She lives with her husband in their meticulously decorated home in Broadview Heights, which is a white suburban community just south of Cleveland, Ohio. Based on that, Tish's politics might surprise you. I can make a list of all the things I've been called. I've been called a communist. I've been called a socialist. I've been called an anarchist. Um, and if you think everything under the sun, you know, so it's like, I, I, I like to think of myself as labelless right now. <laughs> I'm part of the 99%, I guess I'll steal from um, Occupy movement. I'm part of the 99%. When I first got Mike Schaff on the phone, he called me Boo. When I told him no one had ever called me that before, he asked me what planet I'd been living on. Mike lives in rural Louisiana and worked in the oil and petrochemical industry until he recently retired. He's basically a pro-capitalist, anti-abortion, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps member of the Tea Party. He's also an environmentalist. When, if somebody had told me I would be a member of the Green Army 20 years ago, once I heard the word green, I'd have said, you're full of bull. <laughs> And that's putting it mildly. That's full of bullshit. <laughs> Politics often has a lot to do with place, the places we're from and the places we've been shaped by. Mike and Tish have very different views politically, but they also have had profound experiences that connect them, 
primarily the fact that they both had environmental calamity hit the communities they loved. Before we get into that, though, let's hear from them both separately. Then I'll get them on the line to hash out their differences. Tish describes her childhood in Broadview Heights as idyllic. Simple times, just shorts, t-shirts, long blonde hair, just, you know, suntan skin. I mean, it was just easy. In the summertime, there would be festivals and community events, like the lawnmower race her father took part in. All the kids in the neighborhood would be um, cheering on, running alongside their dads on the lawnmower, you know, saying, come on, Dad, come on, you could do it, you could win, you know, just cheering them on to get to the finish line first. Tish's family would proudly plant an American flag on their front lawn every Memorial Day, Fourth of July, and Veterans Day. My family was very patriotic, loved this country. It was all about, my dad had actually served in the military, was during um, the Korean War. And, you know, he always talked about his military days. They were the best years of his life, you know, so we grew up with that aspect. But definitely the World War II mentality that we were the greatest nation on earth. Um, Everyone wanted to be like us. And at the time growing up in this, I mean, I just thought everybody lived like this. I had no idea until I got older and then moved out in different places and experienced more of the world that not everybody lived like this. Tish excelled in school, and she was accepted to Ohio's Kent State University for undergrad. There she had two African-American roommates in the college dorms. It was the first time she'd had friends of other races. Her one roommate, Lisa, grew up in Cleveland, just 11 miles from Broadview Heights. Tish was shocked to hear stories of how Lisa and her siblings felt unsafe in their own neighborhood, how the whole family would come home before dark and lock their doors. The other roommate, Tracy, was politically militant and she would play Malcolm X records sometimes. <laughs> and I would like, I'm in my room and I can hear her playing them and they'd get to the point where, you know, we need to rise up and we need to kill all the white people. And I'd be like, should I be locking my door? <laughs> These experiences shocked Tish out of her comfort, forcing her to look at her idyllic childhood in Broadview Heights through a different lens. But, I mean, I would say there was a definite fear of African-Americans people of color. I mean, it's hard to come out and like say on, you know, yeah, that you grew up in a bigoted, prejudiced community. I mean, but it was. And then I also said it was idyllic. So I'm like, oh my God, that makes me a bad person. (laughs) After college, Tish entered the corporate world. In 1991, after getting married, she moved back to Broadview Heights so they could be near her parents while raising a family. Soon they had a son. I actually fell into the trap that most Americans fall into, what democracy is, and that's about carrying protest signs at different, you know, single events. So um, I think I went to a women's march in Washington, D.C. in... I can't, 1992 or something that was, you know, a big march. I mean, we've had so many women's marches, it just cracks me up. I mean, nothing ever changes, though, but we're we're really good at marching. Long before Tish was marching, Mike was growing up on the bayou in rural Louisiana. Mike was raised Catholic, Cajun, and conservative in the 1950s and 60s. He lived on a plantation with his parents and six siblings. The plantation was named after his great-great-grandmother. I grew up on Armalee's plantation. It consisted of a small ring of houses centered around a sugar mill flanked by acres and acres of cane fields. He still lives just a short drive away. 
you're brought up with this idea of, of living, uh, doing your best you can with what you got, living off the land, uh, fishing, uh, hunting, farming, uh, things like that. Cajuns are very self-sufficient. Mike's mother was Cajun. Cajuns are a majority white French-speaking ethnic group that came to southern Louisiana after being expelled from Canada in the late 1700s. My mother's name was Aliska, but if you called her Aliska, she'd slap you. So <laughs> she, she hated that name. She had a, uh, a little bit of hair growing out on her chin when she was in uh, just a little couple of little spots. When she, and when she was in elementary school, she picked up the nickname Billy for Billy Goat. And so that was her name that she wanted. You call her Billy. You don't call her Aliska. Most Cajuns grew up speaking Cajun French in the home, a unique dialect with a distinctly Southern feel. But Mike didn't. His father, Henry Carl Schaff, was of German descent and a plumber by trade. Henry was also a strong disciplinarian who didn't hesitate to get his cane read out when he thought the boys needed to be taught a lesson. I like. I was kind of afraid of my dad at that then, you know, because I'd hear his truck coming down the road, and I, whatever we was doing, we didn't make sure we was doing it right, you know, because <laughs> we knew he was get that cane read out. But I respected him, and I, I loved him. Mike grew up thinking that poor was other people, that you could make what you needed, live off the land, and work your way towards the life you wanted. There were also African American families on the plantation. They were poorer than the Shaft family, but to Mike, they seemed happy. One of the things that I used to enjoy watching them was they'd take an old tire and a stick. They'd each have a tire and a stick, and they'd run down the road, and they'd hit that tire, and they'd make that, that tire roll, keep making it roll, and they'd run, I mean, faster and faster and faster. And then we had our bicycles. we let them ride our bikes and stuff like that. So it's kind of like, but, we, you know, I didn't even know what the word, the N-word was until... well into elementary school. Even as a child, Mike was aware that only a handful of generations ago, the ancestors of his black neighbors had been slaves. The, the way I figured it, I didn't, it didn't bother me because my, I, my folks didn't own slaves or, you know, my descendants. We were Cajuns who came up a different way. And we had, we shared, we had a shared struggle is what we had. I didn't, I can't say that, you know, I didn't, I, you don't bond with them, you don't, because the, the experience is different, you know, they, I can't imagine coming here in chains and uh, having to work. Mike's hard work and determination paid off. He ended up getting into college on a scholarship. There he studied engineering and had lots of fun dating girls and making new friends. For spending cash, Mike spent the summer working in the swamp, laying down massive planks so giant oil rigs could get through without sinking. They called it the board road. And you'd be covered with this oily mud from head to toe. Well, your first couple of days, you come back home and you're, you're aching all over. And you just, you, of course, you smell that Vorsal. It's like, uh, you know, it's like pouring diesel on you. So, <laughs> and you smell like that. My mama used to make me take my clothes off outside. We had a sugar kettle. I had to throw my clothes in the sugar kettle. It was a the big, looks like a World War One helmet up, up sitting upside down, and it had water in it. I'd throw it in there and I'd rinse it off before I could give it to her, and then she'd wash them for me, separate from everything else. 
Still, Mike doesn't think any of the chemicals he was exposed to have affected his health. Well, nothing happened to me yet, so, I mean, except maybe turn my brain a little funny. <laughs> and, uh, I, didn't, I don't go in the dark yet, so... <laughs> After college, Mike decided to join the military. When he returned from overseas, the anti-war movement was in full swing. I was spit on and called a dog by some hippies that were in a restaurant. <laughs> Wasn't no thank you for your service back then. It was your baby killer. I couldn't. I wanted to hit him, I wanted to, but I couldn't because I was in uniform. Instead of pursuing a life in the military, Mike got married and started building platforms for oil rigs. Mike decided to buy a home in a small town called Bayou Corn, just a few miles from where he grew up. Houses in Bayou Corn were built right on the swamp, with dirt roads, Spanish moss hanging from the trees, and boats docked right in your backyard. Pretty much everyone in Bayou Corn fished and hunted. Uh, there was maybe, I'd, I'd say about a city block away, uh, there was the last house on the, on, at the end, and she had a very shrill voice. Uh, hey, Mike! And she had it. It was real high-pitched and then just carried. Or sometimes me and my wife would be fishing, and she'd be oh, half a mile away in the lake somewhere fishing. And you could hear her talking. Being a Cajun town, there was never a shortage of community with whom Mike and his wife could share the sweeter things in life. Whether it was the annual Mardi Gras parade marching down the main road or just sitting on the dock enjoying a few cold beers with his neighbors, Mike found himself happier than he'd ever been. I asked Mike what happened to the black families he grew up alongside on the plantation. He says African Americans in his community have been able to work their way out of poverty the same way he did. You, know, you may see it in the city, but I'm not in the city. I live in the country, and we respect African Americans, we respect whites, we respect Mexicans, we respect anybody. As long as you, if you can do the work, you get paid. All these opportunities and economic improvement, Mike reasons, would never have been possible without corporations. If we didn't have corporations, we would either there'd be a whole lot less people living in the world or we'd be a whole lot skinnier. Almost everyone over here in some way has a uh, profession or career that's uh, dependent on these plants. While Tish grew up a generation after Mike on the opposite side of the country, their childhoods weren't all that different. They both grew up in stable, happy families, enjoying nature and the security of small communities. As Tish and Mike got older, after they went to college and saw a bit more of the world, they both came right back to the areas they grew up in. Their lives were sailing along pretty smoothly until disaster struck each of their communities. One day, back in Broadview Heights, Tish got a call from her mom, who lived right down the street. And she said, this is really weird today. We got a knock at the door, and there's a landman here. I go, Who's a, what's a landman? She goes, he's a landman from an oil and gas drilling company, and he wants to lease our land in the back for oil and gas drilling. And I go, are you kidding me? I go, here in Broadview Heights? And my first question was, well, is it safe? Tish and her mom knew nothing about fracking, but they were naturally skeptical. How do I know if what you're paying me for actually comes from underneath my property, her mom asked. Don't worry, the landsman would reply. The state regulates it. And a few days later, the landman comes and knocks at the door again, but this time he's got several of her neighbors. And now they've lived on this street for 30 years, and these neighbors are like, 
irritated with her. You better sign that. We've all signed is what they're saying. You better sign the lease too. So we get our money. The drilling companies were good at getting their way. When Tish found out they'd be taking the oil whether her mom signed or not, she told her to sign and hope for the best. At the same time, the city was allowing them to drill in the center of town, right on government property. People's first question usually was, you know, is it safe? They could then point to and say, well, there's one up at the school or there's one up at the plate next to the playground. When I went to Broadview Heights, Tish took me on a tour around town. The oil wells were everywhere. As soon as you got close enough to one, the air started to smell like gas. Kind of like in your kitchen, when you accidentally leave the burner on your stove without a flame. We've had residents complain they can't sit out on their decks, they can't sit outside because the odor is so horrible. And yet, we're told that there's nothing emitting from these wells. Can you try to describe the smell? Um, it smells like petroleum, I think, a lot of times. I mean, it, it's just uh, like gasoline sometimes. Mm -hmm. But that's the sad part. None of us know exactly what's coming out because no one actually tests or cares enough to test. People living near the wells complained of side effects like migraines and nausea. The situation outraged Tish. So did what felt like many of her neighbors' passive acceptance of the situation. For some people, it's like, and we still have this today, some people, when it's in their backyard, they just want it moved somewhere else. Okay, that, and that's a whole different. Now that I have a problem with. If it's bad in your community, why would you want to put it in someone else's? Meanwhile, in Bayou Corn, Mike is enjoying the relative prosperity he'd gained after working for decades in the oil and petrochemical industry. Apart from fishing, Mike now spent his weekends playing golf and flying small airplanes. Then, one day a neighbor went out fishing and noticed something unusual. We knew that something was wrong because we was going fishing. And you see the bayou just bubbling like somebody boiling crawfish. It's just, it's not just a little, couple of little bubbles like, like you see in the swamp. This is, boom, 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 you know, big bubbles coming up like, like crazy. It turns out all those years that Mike and his neighbors had been living their peaceful lives in bio corn, something sinister was happening below the surface. They knew a company named Texas Brine had been drilling into the underground salt mine nearby. The brine they extracted was used in the petrochemical refinement industry. What residents didn't know was that the salt mine was being drilled in a spot that Texas Brine knew wasn't safe. The mine started to collapse, and in 2013, a massive sinkhole opened up just outside Bayou Corn, swallowing up acres of water and trees. Soon, methane gas was seeping up through the ground. The bubble started appearing closer and closer and closer, and, and it was like where I told you about Vicky and Preston, the one that had the shrill voice, it was right there next to her house in the water. So I went look around the neighborhood and I saw where a guy wire from a telephone pole was in the ground. The bubbles were coming up out of there. Poured water on the ground. In my yard, they had bubbles there too, little small bubbles. A mandatory evacuation was put into place and most of the residents left. But Mike was one of five or six people that flat out refused to leave. A choice that harkens back to his self-reliant childhood. You know, I don't want anybody feeling sorry for me. That's the worst. I can take care of myself. I'm big and ugly enough to do that. Mike was particularly pissed off by the Environmental Protection Agency. 
and maybe it's part of my Tea Party crap in me, but I don't believe that I should be, that I've been paying these people taxes for that long and that much to do a job that they haven't been doing or they haven't been doing it effectively. Many of the residents of Biocorn felt the same, so they decided to band together and sue Texas Brine. Mike was becoming an environmentalist. Biocorn is the tip of the iceberg. I mean, it's very small. I mean, it's just like that people are being polluted every day in Louisiana. Back in her neighborhood, Tish was also fed up. First, she joined a neighborhood group and tried to ban fracking, but that didn't work. Then she decided to run for mayor and lost. Then Tish was hired as an organizer with the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, or CELDEF, a law firm that holds corporations accountable for environmental destruction. One of the first things she did was put an initiative on the ballot in Broadview Heights to end fracking. I don't know what the people in this community are going to say. They may say, drill, baby, drill, for all I know. And, but I could live with that better because then I know it's the people here making that decision who live here about their community and not people who don't even live here. Or it's not a corporation, you know, shoving it down our throats. Six months later, it went up for a vote and they won. Broadview Heights became the first community in Ohio to ban fracking. Since then, another 37 attempts have been made in Ohio, yet only four of them have been successful. And if we can think bigger to hundreds of communities doing this, you know, and it moving from state to state. I mean, that's what the goal is. We could make tremendous change. For both Tish and Mike, the environmental struggles that hit their communities opened their eyes. Eventually, the community in Biocorn settled their lawsuit. Mike was one of the last residents to sign the papers and leave his home of 25 years. The settlement was enough for him to buy a new house just a few miles down the road, but the experience he had in Biocorn was not something Mike could just walk away from. Mike was making connections between the disaster in Biocorn and problems he'd been seeing his whole life. Uh, my mom and my mama died of, uh, of uh, renal cancer. I guess we were kind of lucky. My sister has renal cancer. My other sister has had, had uh, breast cancer. She's still living. Uh, my brother also had uh, skin cancer when he was younger. Mike said in Biocorn, just about every other house had someone in it who had battled cancer. And it wasn't just the older folks either. They were young people with rare types of cancer no one had ever heard of. Though lifestyle choices like smoking and how people eat contribute as well, the cancer cluster in Mike's area, one of the worst in Louisiana, can at least be partly traced to industry. Tish had also lost people in her family to cancer. Though the number of deaths in Broadview Heights isn't as extreme, these deaths make the drilling and pollution in her neighborhood much more personal. I mean, it's kind of like a weird thing, but I like look at the obituaries in the paper when they come out every day, and I look at the ages of the people. I mean, of course, this isn't scientific or anything, but I see so many young people, and I see so much cancer. I mean, I've had cancer in my own family. Um, two of my cousins who were like sisters to me. And then I would see my son. And I kept thinking about his future. I see on the TV commercials all the time for cancer centers and the kids with, you know, and working in schools, so many kids that I saw with um, illnesses or cancer. 
And when I see it on TV, it just makes me angry because they're trying to normalize that kids get cancer and that we should be accustomed and used to seeing bald kids going through chemo. And that makes me so sad and angry at the same time because it's not normal. No matter how many commercials and how much money they spend to convince us of that, it's not normal. So the question they both ask is what can be done? Mike blames the regulatory agencies for letting the corporations pollute, not the corporations themselves for polluting. He says, give them an incentive not to pollute, monitor them 24 hours a day, and the cancer caused by pollutants will disappear. But the solution is not to get rid of the plants. The solution is to get rid of the cancer. The solution is to get rid of the emissions. The solution is to get EPA off their big fat ass and get out here and, t- and, and help us do something about that. Mike had become an environmentalist, which is a huge paradigm shift for a Tea Party libertarian. They generally don't consider protecting the environment as one of their main concerns. Tish, on the other hand, was one of millions of Americans influenced by the Occupy movement in 2011. Is a lot of times we hear so many people say that the system's broken. And they're talking about our government. The system's broken and we need to fix it. And it's a total paradigm shift to think of it the way now I think of it and people who I work with is that the system's fixed and we're the ones who need to break it. We need to take a sledgehammer to it and create something better that works for people and the environment. When it comes to climate change, Tish understands people being skeptical of what they hear on the news. But she doesn't understand when people refuse to do their own research and connect the dots themselves. Yes, climate change, I think we have to keep that in mind because it's the greatest threat to all of us, no matter what our socioeconomic status is, no matter what part of the country we live in, what part of the world. Um, I totally support people, you know, fighting different fights, you know, social justice fights, poverty, racism, all those things. But in the end, I have to keep thinking, will it matter in 20 years? I mean, we can't, if we don't solve this problem first, all of our other issues, especially if the human race is wiped out, aren't really going to matter. I mean, we talk about past movements and that past movements took 70, 100 years to solve. We don't have that kind of time. Mike feels very differently. I'm, I'm an environmentalist big time, but I don't believe in climate change. I don't believe it's that big of a deal. For Mike, pollution and climate change are two separate issues. He hasn't noticed the storms in Louisiana getting any worse. Yes, global temperatures have risen, but that's just part of a natural cycle. Most of all, Mike doesn't see his neighbors giving up their modern necessities anytime soon. And I don't particularly want to give up my vehicle or my electricity or my iPad or iPhone or my clothes or my food. Mike's strategy for impending environmental destruction, which he holds no illusions about, is to focus on cleaning up your own backyard. He spends his free time working with the Green Army, a coalition of nonpartisan environmental organizations led by retired U.S. Army General Russell Honore. I'm not going to stop driving my truck or pick up a bicycle. We'll adapt. The people... In Minnesota, we'll get air conditioners. We over here, we'll just move further inland. And Tish continues to organize with Cell Death, 
helping other communities like Broadview Heights pass local laws protecting themselves from corporations and building towards self-rule. And that's what's interesting because a lot of people will bring up, you know, the whole NIMBY thing, not in my backyard. And they'll say, oh, you're just, you know, some suburbanite who it's not in my backyard. But I've evolved beyond that. I mean, I think some people still stay in that. I mean, I've kind of defend the whole NIMBY thing because I go, thank God it came to my backyard. Because I'd still be in that bubble. It opened my eyes to the injustice of the whole system and how it works. California after visiting Mike in Louisiana in Titian, Ohio. Today they'll be speaking for the first time. Last night I sent Mike and Tish each the other's backstory, so now they know as much about the other as you do. I start by half-jokingly thanking Skype and technology in general for bringing us all together. Um, it's kind of amazing, technology, that we're all in completely different parts of the country and we can actually have a conversation so, yay technology, or, or as Mike would say, yay corporations. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say that. I know you wouldn't. <laughs> Let's get rid of them damn corporations. <laughs> no, no, that's not entirely true. We'll get a tin can and a string and we'll talk <laughs> like we used to when no. we were kids. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into that, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like we're already into it. Yeah. We'll take the we'll take the gloves off after a while. <laughs> but, now look, I'm an old man. Don't beat me up now. <laughs> uh, I, I'm a middle aged woman, so I don't know how much harm I could do. <laughs> I'm about I'm about I'm about double your middle age. <laughs> Mike and Tish recognize that they have a lot in common. Both of them stood up and fought back when their communities were under threat. Tish starts by launching into her gripes with the EPA. But it's a place for us to go vent. They'll set up hearings where we get to go vent and say what we're pissed off about. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we say. You, you've, you've, you've found the same thing that I found. And uh, the EPA has washed their hands of it. Because you, you, you go there and, and 50 people will get up to the microphone and tell them what, why we don't want the project. And a month later, they write the permit anyway. As a Tea Party perspective, I'm just wasting my tax dollars on a, on a bunch of people that sit around the coffee pot and, and, and bullshit all day long. Because they sure as hell don't do anything until they're brought kicking and, and dragging to the, to the uh, conference table, yeah, which well, is what happened in, in North Louisiana. Go ahead, Tish. I'm sorry. No, I was kind of, I'm just agreeing with you. I mean, they can get rid of the EPA for all I care. And they share their frustrations about how politicized environmental issues have become. For some reason... God off reason that I don't know about uh, the environment has been turned over to the Democrats and uh, there is no way that the environment should be a left or right thing. It's a, it's a people thing. Yeah. We all need clean air and clean water. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And in the, the legislature, there's not people like you and I in there. They're not people from the country. The people from the city. So the, 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 the country folk that, that have been living in the environment all their life and, and are close to nature understand that it's important to have a you know to keep the the rabbits healthy and the eagles healthy and the fish uh, edible oh i agree with you 100 percent. in some ways tish and mike's frustrating experiences with the government have left them with similar critiques 
sometimes so similar, I could easily imagine something one of them said being said by the other, like what Mike says here. The politicians or the puppet masters, it's not really the politicians, it's the puppet masters who put the politicians in office that's really in charge. They like to keep us divided and at each other's throats so that we don't see through the veil. Tish and Mike are where Tea Party Republicans and Occupy Movement radicals come together. It doesn't matter if one of them uses the term puppet masters and the other uses 1%. They both share a healthy distrust of the rich, mostly urban elite. Tish challenges Mike on voting for Trump. Um, I'm curious, though, Mike, you talk about Trump being this, you know, maverick. Um, and you brought up, you know, John Soros and other people. But these are all ones that are part of the one percent. I don't understand how they're any different. I mean, they're the huge elite that when I talk about the corporate state, I mean, whether it's the Koch brothers, whether it's Trump, whether it's John Soros, they've all made their money through this corporate state system where the corporations own basically our government and use it to put profit above people, decisions that are good for people and the environment. So I don't see this maverick, I guess, that you see in Trump because I see he's still part of that 1% all about corporate money and his personal money and making more and more of it and taking from the 99% of us and raping and pillaging nature to get it. Well, you know, to me, I don't see... I don't see Trump as a as a puppet master because I don't see him as putting his guy in office. I see him as being tired of the status quo and doing something about it and having the good the the, the, the good thing about his money is that he was that gave him the ability to run for for, for president uh, because that's what that's what talks around here is money. Um, you, but if but you, you, if you, I know. If you, Ahead, but the de- no, that's okay. I was going to say, but the decisions that he's making are all again to benefit the one percent. Maybe the tax plan <laughs> is what you're talking about. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know of anything else that he's done to benefit anybody other than the uh, the tax plan. But I, I think it benefits everybody. It just more, it disproportionately affects the one percent, like you, like you call them. Uh, in other words, it favors them more, but it also favors me. Well, I'm getting a larger Social Security check now because I don't have as much money being taken out. For the most part, it's beyond me how working class people like Mike see Trump as being on their side. But our political system has become so dominated by two parties that people feel forced to take sides. I asked Mike if there are any elites he considers dirtier than Trump. Well, my, my puppet masters are the George Soros's of the world and the Harvey Weinstein's. Those are the puppet masters who aren't really corporate, but they they have that's their own agenda. And uh, again, it's to enrich themselves. At this point, a conversation ostensibly about global warming has now become about who holds power and controls information. Tish elaborates. What I found is working and going into communities, if you actually start getting them involved in conversations about what would make their community better and what they would like to see, they will come up with ideas that I can't think of, that you can't think of, but no one ever gives them that choice. And we have been so beaten down and so brainwashed to believe that we have to go to the experts, you know, whether they're in the state capital or whether they're at the, you know, scientists or they're the lobbyists or they're the industry, that we are so stupid and helpless, we can't do anything for ourselves. Pretty soon, Tish and I are getting into it. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't find, I don't, 
I don't know if I agree. I mean, I, I, I hear where you're coming from, but I, I, don't, I don't find Mike and people in his community to be stupid and helpless. I just think they're in a really hard position where they just don't know what to do. And I think a lot of people in this country feel that way. Right. It, they do. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying they think they're stupid. I'm saying we've been taught to believe that, that like somehow we're not the experts. We don't matter. Yeah. You know, what we and we we are too dumb. I meant all of us. I wasn't talking about Mike and his community that all of us suffer from this same illness, I guess, and brainwashing. Yeah. That we don't think we can, you know, totally. it's like if you tell totally. people, right, climate change, how are you going to fix climate change? Everybody goes, well, I can't fix climate change because it's too huge of a problem. I mean, and so they just get paralyzed by the enormity of the problem. But if you bring it down to a local level and say, here's our community, here's where we live, and these are some things that are wrong, these are the problems here, and here's our solutions. So when do we decide enough is enough? When do we decide we're not going to keep following these immoral um, laws that are polluting and killing our communities? When do we stand up? All right. I'm fired up. (laughs) (laughs) It's what I do, Sarah. I know, I know. (laughs) We just took a really big detour, but I'm glad Tish brought us back to global warming. The point of the conversations we have in this podcast is to get outside of right and wrong, to try to understand if being honest about our differences could make it easier to learn from each other. I asked Mike if there's anything I could say that would shift his views on climate science, trying to suss out just how rigid his views really are. His answer surprises me. Uh, I sure as hell, if there was a way to do climate change right now I'd, or to fix it, I'd, I'd be right in there with you. But I don't, I don't see the, I'm 68 years old, I don't see it happening in my lifetime, so I'm going to leave that up to your, you and my grandchildren. So. Well. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's, that's like you said, that's a lar- larger struggle. Um, I, I, I can't even tell you that it does exist. I, it, it's just not one of my... It's not one of my sticking points, okay, one of my, my hot, hot button issues. So I don't really concern myself with it. Right. And to me, I, I caught that in your backstory, Mike, that, you know, you just believe it's natural, natural cycles. And I do believe that, yes, the earth, the climate, all that does go through natural cycles. But we are definitely accelerating it. And the problem I have with that is that we're not thinking about the future generations and what's happening to them. And that's my big problem with this, um, that our selfishness today and greed, we're not giving a thought to the future. Tish says we need to think about our great-grandchildren. Mike says at some point we need to leave the future to the ones living it. A part of me sympathizes with Mike's acceptance of the inevitability of it all, our lack of control over the future especially considering where he lives, which is right in the middle of arguably the area most affected by climate change in the country. Rising sea levels have already shrunk Louisiana's coastal area by more than 300 square miles. Over 2 million people are living on land that's imminently under threat. Global warming has become a dangerous example of what's called an identity-protected issue. It's so politicized, so tied up in our identities, that it's hard to separate out personal emotions from the facts. Mike may be skeptical about the data, but I'm not convinced that he straight out dismisses the science. Every time I brought up climate change in his presence, he gave me this, what do you want me to do look. He talks about it not being a big deal or a hot-button issue, Instead, he focuses on how Al Gore should stop flying airplanes or how Hollywood needs to practice what they preach. 
Basically, when I bring up climate science, Mike starts talking about class. And when I think about it, class is a pretty significant difference between the way Tish and Mike grew up. While Mike was playing with spare tires and hunting to put food on the table, Tish was traveling to Germany and hanging out at the mall. When I bring up class, Tish pivots back to her standard catch-all solution, community self-rule. What about the? What do you think about the community just having a voice and being able to say, no, we don't want your damn plant in our community? Yeah, that, well, I don't know about y'all over there, but in Louisiana, we forget it. Especially, uh, you see what you did by getting your township to uh, have it where they, there's no fracking. We can't do that in Louisiana. Why don't you want to fight to change that? Well, I, I, we are. <laughs> <laughs> I try to push Tish on the jobs that would be lost if Mike's community were able to kick out the corporations. So I guess I'm just curious, you know, how to reconcile that difference. Because the truth is, is there's no other opportunities for people in Mike's part of the country. Well... <laughs> I mean, we all need to put food on the table. I mean, that's, I mean, that's something basic. But it's, again, and how much do we need? And so there's a whole mindset, I think, and it doesn't matter, I don't think, if you're poor, middle class, you know, upper middle class. I mean, I think we all have to come to grips with that. And I look at us as all part of the same. There's this 1% that keeps pushing that, and they're benefiting much more and much more and just taking more and more and more. I mean, it reminds me back of, you know, when we did have monarchies and a few wealthy barons, land barons, and they owned everything. But coming to grips with a lower standard of living means something very different depending on where you start out. Mike goes on to explain how much corporations have raised the standard of living in Louisiana. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, Louisiana was a very poor state. Um, but we were happy. Uh, you know, we, uh, the, the people around here in South Louisiana lived off the land pretty much. They were farmers or they were uh, trappers, uh, fishermen, hunters, and things like that. But when the oil companies came in back in, uh, I guess, in the 40s, maybe maybe early 50s, it's, um, we got people started making real money over here and climbed out, out of, you know, they could buy houses that were not uh, shotgun houses that had air conditioning in it. It, it. it raised Louisiana up to the level of the rest of the country. Mike's community depends on the oil and petrochemical industry. In order to be effective as an environmentalist, his strategy must be rooted in the conditions of the people around him. When I bring up class, Tish tends to be somewhat dismissive, and Mike's reaction is similar on another hot-button issue, race. I ask Mike if racism is a problem in his community. And you still hear the N-word from people, and it's like, but I don't associate with those people. You know, that's... that's uh, I, I tell them, and it's, you know, to, don't say that in front of me, and I just walk away. Or else, you know, if if they, they want to remain my friend, you don't, you know, and they know that. So, uh, if they're if any of my friends are racist, they're closet racist because they don't they don't let me know that because they ain't gonna be my friend for very long. Mike sees racism as a problem between individuals, not as society's problem. The community that I'm living in is, I guess, ninety five percent white, so. That's that's what we are. If there was ninety five percent black, I'd have black neighbors, and I'd be, you know, invite them over to to, to a fish fry and things like that, like I do with my white neighbors. 
I don't, to me it's just another color. Just because you're a black person or a, uh, a, a Mexican or uh, a Japanese, it doesn't matter. You're a person. You have certain wants and needs that everybody does, every human individual does. Mike says if he had black neighbors, he'd invite them to his fish fries. It's normal to him that people of different races in rural Louisiana are still living largely apart. As long as you're courteous, Mike reasons, race isn't really a problem. But perhaps he's not close enough to any African Americans for them to be honest about their experience of racism. I asked Tish if she thinks racism is a problem. No, there's definitely a racism problem in this country. I don't know. I think there are tons of, I mean, yeah, you brought up drugs, and so there's poor people, and they take drugs, and they go to jail. Well, why are they still filled with black people? Because we have poor white people. So, of course, there's racism, and the laws don't apply equally to the black people that commit the crime and the white people that commit the crime. Let me, let me, let me, let me not correct you, but interject right here. That's not a racist thing. That's a, a, um, a living standard thing. Uh, the reason there's more blacks in the prison is not because they're black or because the police hate blacks. It's because black people are poor. Okay. We all agree that there are more black people than white people in prison. We also agree that white people do drugs and commit crimes of poverty just like black people do. So to Mike's point, why are there so many poor black people in prison? Tish and I would say historic racism, the legacy of slavery, and how bias and prejudice are deeply embedded in all of our institutions. But Mike would say that by focusing on inequalities of the past and victimizing certain groups, society perpetuates poverty. The government perpetuates poverty uh, by, instead of teaching a person to be productive, they have a tendency to make you feel better or the, uh, the, the, the rich puppet masters to make them feel better to give the poor people a free phone or a free handout that's not the best thing for anybody black white or whatever if you're poor you're poor i mean and 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 this is not a racist thing this is a poor thing this is a they got a lot they got a lot more poor white people than they got you know number wise than they got poor black people percentage wise there's more black people that's poor Mike's right. We do have a lot of white people in poverty in this country. 17 million, in fact, and that number is going up. On average, people in red or Republican states die five years earlier than people in blue or Democratic states. We have an incredibly large number of people of all races living in poverty in this country, a whopping 22% of African Americans. To bring it back to our main topic, there's no doubt that it's poor people that are most affected by pollution and global warming. Meanwhile, Tish still hasn't given up trying to convince Mike that her strategy will work for him. So again, I keep coming back to in your community. I mean, I'm like harping on this, but, you know, if in your community, the people want to do certain things, you know, all I hear all the time from people and, you know, Mike, you've said it many times is we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't. And I'm like, I don't understand when the people in this country became so... Um, had that defeatist attitude about everything. We can't change anything. We can't do anything about it. Throughout this conversation, Tish has brought up local community rule again and again. Personally, I think she sometimes falls back on it as a solution to too many of our problems. Though it is important, I don't think local legislation alone can give us the democracy we deserve. We live in a global world. Frankly, 
I don't think we can trust people to pass local laws that get beyond their own narrow interests. We need checks and balances, some kind of oversight in order to ensure that local communities don't ship their waste to China or force prisoners to do their dirty work. Of course, Tish is part of a nationwide organization that recognizes this. Mike, on the other hand, prefers to focus his energy on things he can actually impact. Tish is correct. I do have pretty much kind of had that attitude uh, on, you know, things that are beyond my ability. Uh, I, I don't have a, an outlet over here to say, OK, I want my, my parish government to just use bicycles I don't want them to use SUVs anymore, or at least, uh, you know, a, a Prius. If you're going to have a company car, have it make me a Prius. I got a limited amount of time, and I focused my time on the things that I think would have the most impact. This conversation started out being about global warming, but we ended up talking a lot about race and class, which kind of makes sense considering how long these issues have divided us. But I realize today's conversation has run out of time. To wind things down, I decide we need to talk about one of the most important things from our trip down to Louisiana. And you haven't tried Mike's gumbo, Tish. You haven't lived. You said it was good. <laughs> it was good. Yeah, thank you. You could ship some up. Yeah, it's, it's real, I mean, it's easy, real quick. <laughs> if you friend me on Facebook, I'll send you the recipe. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't think I don't know if I can get the fresh seafood though. Oh, I didn't. We didn't use seafood. We used just chicken and sausage. Oh, chicken and sausage. Gumbo. Okay. The, the seafood gumbo is good mm-hmm. too, but it's expensive as hell. You, you got mm-hmm. you got crab is like I don't know, almost twenty dollars a pound right now. Shrimp is shrimp's not too bad, like four five dollars a pound. A lot more expensive in Ohio for yeah. shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> What's your shrimp over there? Oh, uh, pro- probably about eighteen dollars a pound. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm just, if I go to Ohio, it's just going to be for a little while. Then. <laughs> I'm going to miss my seafood. <laughs> I thank them both for being so honest and candid in this conversation. Bye, Mike. Good meeting you, Trish. Yeah, you too, Mike. Bye-bye, Tish. Bye, Mike. All right. Bye-bye. later, I jump on the phone with Mike and Tish one by one to get their final thoughts. I feel like there was a lot unsaid and even more to unpack, particularly on the more contentious topics of poverty and race. Mike says he feels good about how the conversation went. He's certain that if Tish lived in Bayou Corn during the incident, they would have been fighting side by side. She'd have been somebody I didn't probably have to fight with us. Uh, she, she has the same grip that I, that I had back then. She also knows that I, if, if, if I was living up there and going through the same thing as she was doing, I'd be standing there side by side with her too. So we, we have a very common ground when it comes to the environment. I was surprised to hear from Mike how nervous he was before the conversation. I mean, you, you, you never met anybody before and you don't know, uh, and you never done anything like this before. So it's kind of, I guess, kind of awkward. Uh, you build it up in your head and then you, find out that all those fears is misplaced. Specifically, Mike says, he found it awkward on race. To me, that's no big deal. I don't, you know, I don't know of any bigots around here other than, you know, the ones that I know I don't really associate with. And I just think it's stupid to, uh, for people to be a bigot. So, when we discussed it, it's like people automatically think people from the South are bigots, so, you know. 
I guess, I don't know if I got defensive or what, but it's just, uh, <clears throat> it just, I was just a little uncomfortable. I tell Mike I didn't think he got defensive and that I appreciated his openness. I hope he understands that my intent was not to be more polarizing. I read too much crap about uh, people trying to be holier than thou and, you know, you know, they, they, they won't say the N-word, but they're glad to say the, the R-word, the redneck word. And uh, that's just as offensive when you, when you, uh, you call a person a name to be insulting, like the N-word or redneck, then it's wrong. It, the door swings both ways. Though I don't agree with equating the word redneck with the most offensive word in the English language, I do think that the underlying feeling that Mike's expressing here is of being disrespected. That feeling alone, on either side, can shut down the opportunity for dialogue. I also worry that just by virtue of the fact that I'm coming from an urban perspective, this episode will come across as sounding arrogant or judgmental. I really hope this isn't the case. Mike brings up the hypocrisy of me pushing him to accept the science on climate change when I myself flew 2,000 miles on a gas-guzzling airplane to come visit him. You can, you can believe it if you want. But I ain't going to give up my car call. I'm not going to you know, turn off my air conditioning because you're worried about global warming. So, so that I don't, think, I don't think you will. I don't think you will either. I don't think you will. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't take a horse out here, did you? I know, I know. I just think about that. You threw the call. Yep. Yep. Mike brings up liberal guilt. I think one one of the things that shaped my the way I feel is I was fortunate to be brought up poor, and 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 what I what I'm saying is I I don't have any guilt. I don't have any the liberal guilt that uh, all those poor people they just. I was poor, and I know how to get out of being poor. I think now might be a good time for a little self-scrutiny. Who am I to tell Mike he needs to think about global warming, racism, or anything else? Just another city girl up in her high horse judging people whose lives I don't understand. That's not the whole story, though. I get that Mike had to work extremely hard to get out of poverty. He wants both poor whites and poor blacks to be able to do the same. But 11.5 million children are hungry in this country every day. Mike would never deny food to a child. He's far too kind for that. But denying impoverished families' welfare is essentially the same thing. You can't punish children because of the shortcomings of their parents. And this isn't my liberal guilt talking. It's not only our responsibility to care for people more vulnerable than ourselves. It's in our self-interest. I ask Mike if talking to Tish has made him feel any differently about liberals. He says he'd share a foxhole with her. If I let somebody in my foxhole, I trust them with my life. And I wouldn't let somebody in my foxhole that I wouldn't, I don't believe is following the same values that I am. Uh, the, the ones that count, you know, the, the values that count. So uh, she, she was, she's a warrior. After I'm done talking to Mike, I follow up with Tish. She tells me Mike friended her on Facebook after the conversation, and since then they've been sending articles back and forth. Yeah, he sent me that message saying, yeah, I'd be happy to share a foxhole with you anytime. And I'm like, oh, the feeling's mutual, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm hoping it doesn't get that bad. But, um, you know, the other thing, well, how long do I have to be in the foxhole with him is the other question. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. 
Tish said she also feels pleasantly surprised about how the conversation went. I ask her, ultimately, if Mike's opinion on global warming feels relevant or important to her. Well, I mean, from my perspective, because I do believe in climate change, you know, and so that's, to me, what happens, I always say that to you, I mean, it's not just about what happens here. I mean, what happens here, obviously, is important, too, but when you then take it to the next level and look at the bigger picture, I mean, we all have to live on this planet, and we're all going to be affected by that, so... I think what happens in his community does affect me, and what happens in my community does affect him. I suggest to Tish that maybe she could join the Green Army. They just want me to go to legislative hearings, and that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> but if they, get to, if they get to the point where they want me to like stand down with them and lock down for some project that's going to come that's going to destroy their you know, environment, well, then I could come and do with them. They're really going to be an army and fight back. <laughs> Mike and Tish present very different strategies to fight environmental problems. Mike says clean up your own backyard by working with corporations that you depend on. Tish says clean up your own backyard by passing laws against corporations. Each strategy makes sense in the place where each person is rooted. And the underlying values of being a good neighbor and thinking about what's good for your family are the same. On one hand, we know our context better than anyone else. Yet on the other hand, by just focusing on what's in front of us, we can limit our imaginations and ability to dream outside that context. It's a big country and a big world, and part of my hope for conversations like these is to make it feel a little bit smaller. Right now there's no viable force against global warming in this country, and I think there should be. In order to get there, we have to get beyond our political or social groups, because your fate is bound up in mine, and so is your freedom. But we'll never get there unless we find a way to recognize and move beyond our difference. Thank you for listening to Of Two Minds. I'm your host, Sarah Shord. Jeremy Dalmas is our senior editor and sound engineer. The Nana Nobari Foundation is our executive producer. Tune in next week for an episode on artificial intelligence and whether or not robots will be racist. Why Von Hutchinson fears artificial intelligence will reflect the biases and blind spots of the computer geniuses developing the technology. Yosha Bach is one of those geniuses. I want to thank Dan Newman for help with research, DreamCore and Big Oakland for giving us office space, and our colleagues Robert Rosenthal, Keely Badger, Liam O'Donohue, Leah Rose, Nisha Anand, and Gus Alexander for all their support. And thank you to our wonderful guests for sharing so deeply. We're basically a two-person show, and we'd love it if you help us spread the word. If you like the show, please review it on iTunes and tell other people. See you next week. <laughs>